Welcome to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast, where non-diet nutrition, weight-inclusive care, and integrative health collide. We're your hosts, Dana Montes and Christina Hoyt, licensed integrative clinical nutritionists and body image coaches. And we believe you deserve to have a joyful relationship with food in your body, even if you have a chronic health condition or symptoms that just won't quit. On this show, together and with our guests, we're bringing the real talk, no BS5 with tangible tools to help you pursue health and wellness without obsession or restriction. Remember our disclaimer, this podcast is meant for general information purposes only and should not be taken as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hey guys, it's Christina here, and this week I met with the Arford RDs, Stephanie Ginsberg and Rebecca Thomas, to talk about a lesser-known eating disorder, Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. You may have heard of it, but you're maybe not entirely sure what it is. But after this episode, that will not be the case. We were going to answer all of your questions. What is Arford? What the biggest misunderstandings and misconceptions are of it? How it's often misdiagnosed or even completely ignored and written off? How body image can play a role in it and some actionable steps that you can take if you're listening and thinking to yourself oh wow this might be me I feel like avoidant restrictive food intake disorder is what we're going to talk about today very specifically um but I feel like there's like a couple of things I want to start with. One, I feel like there's an upward trending of like I'm seeing it a lot more, um, right? And I I don't want to, I want to dive into that. But I also, for the people who, and I also feel like there's so many misconceptions and I'm hoping that road will lead to the, oh, there's a lot more going on. <laughs> um, but for people who have never, maybe never heard of it, because I feel like it's something that's not often talked about. It's like the lesser known eating disorder, but I feel like it's just as prevalent and just as scary for a lot of people. Um, I'd love for you to share with one, what exactly is it? And what are then some misconceptions that you're noticing in your practice about this diagnosis? That's a really great question. I think, you know, Stephanie and I were talking the other day about a lot of misconceptions, just not only in, I think, the general population, but also in the medical and, you know, psychiatric population as well. It, it, it only became a diagnosis in 2013. So, um, you know, avoided restrictive food intake disorder is diagnosed as a eating disorder, but it is without body image. So it's the avoidance of food, the aversion of eating food, um, fear of eating food based off of a multitude of things. It's such a broad kind of spectrum, um, whether it is just disinterest in taking time away from the day and what you're focused on to meet your hunger needs, or whether it is a certain taste texture or sensation is so bothersome to you or uncomfortable to you that you are avoiding eating that food, even in the presence of a necessity, or it could be something as, as some, you know, as, a fear, you know, fear of choking, fear of vomiting, fear of food contaminating you. Um, but when we get to the point where these things occur to an umpteenth degree, where it's interfering with your health and your psychological functioning, that's when it comes into the realm of being a possible diagnosis of ARFIT. 
Yeah, thank you. I think that really clarifies it for a lot of people that are, that are out there. I think I'd like for you to dive into a little bit more about the nuance of the body image piece because when you go and look at the DSM-5 and you go and read more about it, there's almost like these little subsets where body image can play a role at the same time. So could you describe that a little bit so that people can see like, oh, okay, it sometimes they play together. So I'd love for you to explain that a little bit. So yeah, technically the DSM-5 diagnosis excludes any preoccupation with um, or focus on body image. In fact, the majority of people who present with ARFID are so excited to get their weight back to where it used to be or to a place it never was. If they are still growing and developing, they are stoked to be able to, you know, increase in height um, and overall stature. So, so technically that is a mainstay of this eating disorder versus classic eating disorders like anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder, all of that. But what we have found as time has gone by and people are growing and developing in a society such as the one we have here is that if they have a baseline subtype um, within the three subsets that the DSM has, they are, you know, uh, they are immersed in our culture and the impressions of being small, being important and necessary. And in these individuals with ARFID, whether they were diagnosed earlier or not, they get used to the, um, the, the comments and the identity that was associated with them being smaller. And whether they're choosing to have a new focus on body image or not, it's just coming about. And so yes, restrictive, avoidant and aversive are the technical subtypes, but we've found in our practices that there's mixed, right? They don't just stand alone. Um, and there's this terminology that's kind of, you know, under the surface of ARFID plus, and we're seeing ARFID plus anorexia nervosa, ARFID plus binge eating disorder. Um, and there's a chicken or the egg, you know, discussion out there. Um, oftentimes though, it is rooted in a feeding struggle in earlier age or, and or um, a trauma response to vomiting, choking, these types of things that either occurs within themselves or someone that they witness it with. So yeah. it's technically not a part of the diagnosis, but it exists. Yeah, I mean, I think the truth is we're multifaceted people, right? <laughs> and so thing, we Absolutely. don't live within a vacuum and within a definition in a book, right? We just don't. And to think that we're not influenced by our culture and body image and all these things, that there's going to be layers to this. But I think it's really great that you've defined that the base for Arfred is this really um, – is this kind of aversion and avoidance of food for a multi multiple reasons they could they could fall into different subsets but then yes of course we live in this culture and if you're influenced by these things the same way that everyone else is it might be like oh there's all coming here and all playing a part of this larger puzzle with our our food philosophy and the way that we're interacting with food and i think that's such a great point um that you've pointed out that it can kind of be all yeah. intertwined together. Yeah. I mean, if we're sending the message or we're hearing the message that the way you've been eating is problematic or it's wrong, or you're missing a component here, 
it's only natural that the, the thought and the logic is going to follow. If I'm eating wrong, then I guess my body is wrong, right? Because mm. that's a reflection of what I'm doing. So it, whether it's the chicken or the egg kind of thing, it's rooted in a non-body image source, but it is very understandable for somebody who has ARFID or struggling with ARFID to develop body image issues because of the original you know, source of what their avoidance is or the change in their eating dynamic. Yeah, that makes so much sense. So what would you say are some of the misconceptions that you notice while practicing? Are these some of them? <laughs> is this part of it? Yeah, some misconceptions are really what people are presenting with, right? Because it is the newest um, eating disorder diagnosis, Rebecca and I have a training and we call it treating ARFID, the newest eating disorder on the block. Um, <laughs> even though it has been around, right? Like people have had eating and feeding struggles forever. The fact that as of 2013, it fell under the eating disorder umbrella, it technically is the newest eating disorder on the block. So we in no way discount the fact that people um, have been presenting this way forever. Um, and so a lot of the misconceptions or misdiagnoses out there because it is so new is, oh, this individual is underweight. This individual is restrictive in their intake. Oh, they must have anorexia nervosa restricting type, right? Or if they have the restricting piece and the fear of vomiting, but they do end up vomiting, oh, then, you know, is this ANBP? Um, you know, so it, there's a lot of grasping for straws because so many people are not well-informed about this newest eating disorder. Um, so I think mislabeling, misdiagnosing. Um, I think that the focus on um, recovery is something Rebecca and I have talked about when it comes to ARFID um, and the spectrum of individuals who present with ARFID, there, there may be an, a lifelong journey of continuing to practice levels of comfort in different eating environments, of feeling acclimated to being in front of new foods, to trying them. Um, and so the, the spectrum of what recovery means and what the individual's capability is, um, is really something that everyone who is treating ARFID needs to keep in mind. Because if someone is neurodivergent, we can't expect them to quote unquote, always become a normal eater. And also yeah. what does that really mean? Exactly. But we wanna work with <laughs> what their capacity is and help them feel like they are empowered to take care of themselves. Yeah. I think one of the things that I've always said to clients of mine about what the goal is around the idea of recovery is more about your confidence level. Do you feel confident in being able to feed yourself and nourish yourself without external influence, but being able to be like, okay, I know what I'm supposed to do. I know how to feed myself. I know what works within my comfort zone and what makes me feel good on the inside. And that's really what the ultimate goal is to say that you're never going to have like any kind of thing kind of you know, chiming in or saying, hey, maybe you shouldn't eat that or, ooh, but your body or, ooh, you might choke um, coming up and thinking that they're just going to be completely gone, I think is really unreal, <laughs> unrealistic. It's like telling someone with anxiety saying, oh, just, you know, everything's going to be fine. <laughs> you know, yeah. it definitely is a misconception. I think what a lot of the misconception is around recovery specifically when we talk about that is that I'm going to learn to like food. I'm going to learn mm -hmm. either to like to eat or I'm going to learn that 
I am going to be enjoyable, you know, eating experience all the time, or I'm going to be a foodie or this fear is going to go away. When the reality of the recovery, what we're really looking at is the maladaptive behaviors because of that fear, that avoidance has gotten so bad that now we're in the eating disorder realm, right? So recovery is just correcting that maladaptive coping skill or that maladaptive behavior where it's no longer interfering with your life. So confidence is a number one, reduction of anxiety and improvement of, of eating and feeding self. That is markers of recovery. I think, you know, Stephanie and I look at that as more of markers of recovery than, you know, weight, for instance, as a goal. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, I, I really like that you said that about weight even too. I think sometimes that can be such a hyper focus and then that can be traumatic too um, when someone's forced to to continue to eat when they just don't feel safe doing so. And so how do you then help them have that felt safety throughout the entire experience? And I think that that is so important. So I think that that, that piece is huge, is right? It's like, do they feel safe? And also do they have the capability to process the foods that they're expected to eat. And that's a huge piece of what we focus on with our clients and when we're training other clinicians is, do they have skill-related deficits that warrant um, a feeding therapist, right? Because even though we're dietitians and we understand how the body works and we, um, you know, eat ourselves every day. Um, sometimes there is something happening in an underdeveloped mouth or, you know, a, a, a body that is struggling and they need additional assistance. And so we always keep in mind that there are other auxiliary team members who could be brought in to help these individuals feel like they're capable as well as feeling safe. Are you referring to like an occupational therapist, feeds, I mean, a speech therapist, things like that, that can help with mobility of the mouth and the tongue and all of those things as well? Such a necessary team player. Like we're big on like, you need a clinical team. This is not a one therapy therapist or dietitian job. You need a team to really help you. And with any disease state, really, that, yeah. that's what we're all about. And so I think that sometimes is the missing piece where you might go to one clinician and they be like, well, we can help you with this aspect of the ARFID and we can help you with this aspect of the ARFID. But when you stand back and you look at the needs, right, it's a, it's a complete team. Um, mm -hmm. And so the OT and L, you know, SLP really play a huge part in that, especially with the little ones, um, yeah. the kids. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, I'm really glad that you're bringing up the SLP and everything too, because I've also found with my adults, it's really hard to find an occupational therapist or an SLP who even works with adults. And if it wasn't addressed at a young age for a myriad of different reasons, maybe just went like kind of like low, low grade unpresented for a long time or, or what have you. But if they didn't get that support earlier on, then trying to get in an adulthood can be really difficult. And so I think having that conversation and having the tools available and help having part of your team members then advocate for it and say, okay, no, we actually do need all of these players to come together to support you in all of these different pieces. And I think that having that team approach with any eating disorder, quite frankly, right, it is so important to have a multi-pronged 
layered approach to get to the different roots. Because if you're telling someone, like you said, like if you're telling someone, hey, we're going to eat crunchy carrots today, and they're like, I don't know how to move crunchy carrots around in my tongue without choking. I mean, I'm thinking about my infant. You know, I'm watching my infant eat. Right. Sure. Right. And it took time for her to figure this out. Like it took time for her to be able to do all those different things. I mean, she's not eating crunchy carrots yet. She only has two <laughs> teeth. But but, um, but it is important to kind of see that and to be able to see that progression. And it, I think it's interesting, too, as a parent, I'm seeing the difference between my first child where she was like, I can just, you know, do whatever. And then my second child having nursing issues, having bottle issues, Mm -hmm. having feet, like starting off like, okay, she just needs a little bit more support and learning how to move her tongue around and what we can do and all that. And then now here she is, you know, at 10 months old and she's starting to do all those things. But if you don't have, and I'm a professional in the field, you know, so if you're not someone who's in the field, you're like, I don't know what's going on, you know? Being an adult. And having this issue, like we expect children to go bleh and spin yes. out because they don't know what to do. But as an adult, if you're trying yeah. to have that learning curve, there's a lot of shame behind it. Oh, and so gosh. we knew that it is extremely hard to find a therapist, a dietitian, a psychologist, anybody that is aware of ARFID and that feels comfortable in treating ARFID. Stephanie and I worked together with a bunch of different excellent providers in, in making this website where, you know, both providers and clients and and patients can go on and find a list of SLPs that are ARFID aware that see adults, a list of dietitians that treat ARFID, a list of therapists. But before that, simply bringing this problem to your dietitian or your pediatrician, you know, they didn't have the resources in order to help these patients either. Um, And so, you know, there are specialists out there that do do this job that are aware. And I think, that's also one of the problems that we're seeing is that people just don't know where to go. Yeah. I think also too, I, I feel like even as a practitioner, if you're, if you're not informed, it could just sound like, well, just eat it. Like, what are you waiting? <laughs> like, what are you waiting for? Like, what's the big deal? Like, well, you're not going to choke. You're going to be fine. You know? And you could say that and be like, well, actually I do feel like I'm going to choke, you know? And I think not having, if you go to the wrong person, right, it could be really invalidating and kind of lead you into more isolation and feeling more like you can't get support for this or thinking that there's something inherently wrong with you, you know, and then right. it can be embarrassing. And that's where, you know, all the shame and the guilt and all the things brew underneath the surface there. Um One of the things that I was thinking about, because you've mentioned with children too, but it's often seen as kind of like a childhood disorder and more of like thought of as like just extreme picky eating. Um, And I'd love for you to say some things about that. I see you both nodding your heads like, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) (laughs) and I I would love for you to be like, this is what I feel about it. So yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, then I was just going to jump in before you prompted that with the fact that a misconception out there is that it's just picky eating, right? That that's all ARFID is. And so if someone shows up no matter what age, but especially in the younger population, and they are going through that selective eating or picky eating phase, that they'll just grow out of it. Or that this, you know, adult who only eats grilled cheese and craft mac and cheese is just a picky eater or is different or, oh, that's just our friend so-and-so, right? But, but the reality is, is there's, 
a fine line between a picky eater and what can be called a problem feeder or someone who has ARFID or a feeding difficulty. Um, and so it's really tough because when kids um, show up as picky eaters, they can grow out of it, but there's, there is a typical picky eating phase and stage between ages two and five, and then again at seven to eight, seven to nine. And so that is quote unquote normal and can be expected. But if something happens prior to the age of two, we've got to think about, you know, what interfered with feeding and how that may impact them later when they show up to us for for and with an ARFID diagnosis. And Rebecca and I are very crystal clear that we are not diagnosing professionals, but we can help guide those teammates who are in, you know, in the scope of that um, to differentiate. Um, and, you know, the, the, the extreme picky eating doesn't necessarily interfere with psychosocial functioning, right? Depending upon the level and the severity, how are they hiding away from social engagements? How are they planning their eating or not eating for fear of the anxiety that's going to ensue in a public setting with eating? Um, how do they avoid eating out at a restaurant knowing that there is nothing that feels safe to them or comfortable or not concerning to them? So there is definitely a level and a degree that differentiates picky eating from ARFID. And not only are there nutritional deficiencies, not only can you see reliance upon nutritional supplements or if they are, you know, longer term chronic or in a higher level of care, you know, reliance upon tube feedings, um, but there is marked interference with psychosocial functioning as does the definition say. Yeah, I think, um, I. Yes. So, so um, one of the questions that I have as kind of a res like in response to that is, if you're a parent or an adult, right, and wondering, okay, um, this sounds a lot like me, or this sounds a lot like my kid, um, and you want to understand a little bit more. Now we're not diagnosing. None of us here can right. diagnose anyone with any kind of eating disorder or um, anything like that, but. If you're sitting there and someone says, hey, I'm feeling these things, are there any kind of signs, early signs that you that you would recommend someone say, hey, you might want to look into this a little bit further at various stages? I think that'd be awesome if you guys could share. You want to hit the younger ones? Sure. <laughs> um, I mean, I think, you know, just touching on the older individuals, what's important about this diagnosis coming to light um, and gaining traction and, you know, just uh, again, to bring in awareness as of a study in 2016, one in five, um, I'm sorry, not one in five, that's another stat, 15% of presenting eating disorder cases newly were ARFID. So that was 2016, we're 2023. Wow. Who knows where that stat is now? But, but nonetheless, what I think is so relevant and important and helpful for adults is they're recognizing that they're not, they they are not a different category of human, that they have something to, to explain why they've been the way that they are. And it gives them more courage to be able to show up and get help instead of stay stuck. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's just that piece. Um, 
And with children, I think what is important is, and, you know, developing children and preteens and teens, you know, just adolescent population is what happens around the eating time? How much, how much of a breakdown, how much observed overwhelm, um, how much, um, what's called food jagging, where they will have the same food over and over and over because it's comfortable, because it's preferred, because it's consistent, and then they lose it because they burn out of it, right? We all eat certain foods, you know, because we have them in the house or because we're just really feeling bagels and cream cheese for breakfast. (laughs) But if that is one of a few preferred foods and that is overly consumed and then we reach that person reaches a point where they no longer want to have it they will not bring that back most likely maybe years down the road but we may you know spend a few weeks eating something else and then be like yeah I want a bagel and cream cheese but it is lost in their intake so so the way that they show up to an eating time what kind of comments they're making how they're presenting how they're avoiding um what's happening with their variety of foods? Um, Are they slowly, you know, losing foods? Are they slowly increasing foods? That's the difference in ARFID Mm -hmm. versus maybe a picky eater, you know, growing into their, um, you know, their eating patterns. Um, What else? Um, Rebecca, take it on. <laughs> the narrow, the palate is getting narrow and more narrow and more narrow. So this might be, they were doing 10 foods before. And now as they're aging, it's getting less and less. And so when you have this little bubble of what's preferred foods, and you notice that your child is losing those foods, right? When it gets to the point where we can no longer pack a lunch, we can no longer go out to eat or go to grandma's for dinner because there is a meltdown and a fear and a full out tantrum of like, I have nothing to eat and I cannot eat these other objects or other foods or whatever it is. Um, it becomes a problem. And this is from a, a, a psych, you know, psychological aspect, right? Where it's becoming a problem. It's interfering with everyday life. From a nutritional aspect, when we're running into faltering growth, when we're running into nutritional deficiencies, lack of maturation, right? This is becoming a problem. So when we're seeing these two things, these are really big red flags that this is a little bit more than just your spectrum of picky eating or your spectrum of selective eating. So a lot of kids in general or teens too, or may have a, a spectrum in which they're accepting food. When it goes beyond the threshold of the spectrum where it is not interfering with their growth, it is not interfering with their psychological development or social interaction, right? That's what, we're gonna leave it over there. But when we get to the point where a child, a teen or an adult cannot do the things that they really do need to do to grow and to be healthy, because of their eating, that's a diagnosable eating disorder. Okay. No matter where you look at it, whether it's because of anorexic behaviors or bulimic behaviors or binge eating behaviors, this is no different. The avoidance, right? Just like restricting or binging or purging has gotten to a point where it is interfering incompatible with their life. This is the red flags. It doesn't matter the age. And equally, 
I would say that typically we see individuals who are underweight, um, who have fallen off growth curves, whether it's for stature or for um, their weight for age, but that does not factor into the diagnosis. Um, they can be nutritionally deficient. They can be underweight. They can have a reliance on oral supplements. They can have interference with psychosocial functioning, but technically only one of those four bullets qualifies them for the diagnosis. So yes, there's weight recovery. And yes, we have to work on volume before variety in those instances. Um, but no matter what, when we're starting out with an individual with ARFID, we are working with preferred foods and enough preferred foods before we're asking them to all of a sudden expect to see new foods in their repertoire. Yeah. I have, um, I, I, I'm laughing, not at the conversation because it's very serious, <laughs> but I'm laughing about what my friend is a pediatric nurse practitioner. And she always kinds of jokes about how there are three things you can't make your kids do. And it's eat, sleep and poop. Right. Like you cannot force them to do it. And so I'm hearing like while like while you were t describing, you know, what it could feel like and like the things to look for as a parent, I'm thinking about how difficult it would be to be able to say just eat something. Yeah. Just eat whatever it is. And I could see how it would feel very much like reading something like Ellen Sater's Division of Responsibility be like, well, that doesn't apply to me. Yeah, it's <laughs> you know? parents. It is heartbreaking because, you know, it's funny. I, I joke all the time with, with my family. Like if I ever do a podcast, I'm going to call it Just Eat the Damn Spaghetti. <laughs> That's how parents feel, right? Yes. They, they, they feel, they're like, it's this torn thing of I don't want my child to suffer but there's this helplessness and this struggle. Like I got to get my kid to eat. I got to yeah. get my kid to eat. How do I do that? Um, and there's a lot of studies and a lot of resources out there that, you know, it's all about approach. It, it, and Stephanie and I have like talked about different approaches and we, you know, research different approaches and understanding how parental division of responsibility of feeding and how that interaction plays. But when we're talking about a psychological diagnosis, then those approaches sometimes, like Ellen's division of responsibility, don't love apply. it. By the way, don't want right. to. I'm not knocking it. Right. Just saying and it does great. not. Not everything applies. That's great. Applies all the time. <laughs> so. Right. And so this <laughs> might not apply. And I, there's nothing more heartbreaking than for a parent to come in and be like, "I have done all these approaches. I've tried the AEIOU." I have tried, you know, Ellen's, you know, division responsibility. I've tried hands-on. I've tried hands-off. I've tried all these ways and I can't get my kid to eat and they need to eat. What do I do? Right. Yeah. That is why we have the training we have for professionals. And so, you know, the best thing you can do is to align with your child and say, I know it's hard, right? I know that this is difficult. Let's figure out a way together. Yeah. Yeah. I love And that. I think that that is, is exactly what Rebecca and I talk about all the time is yes, we are out there training clinicians as much as we can, because it feels so important so that the clinicians and providers feel confident and competent because this newest eating disorder keeps presenting itself and these individuals want and need assistance. Um, but we recognize there is no 
one protocol for treating ARFID. There is no right or wrong. It really is individually based. And it is as a result of bringing all the components that have been researched, that have been you know, best practiced, all of that, so that everyone feels as well-versed as possible and can apply what they know and what feels good in their detective hat and gut with these individuals to, to provide the best you know, services possible. Of course, none of us want to do any harm. And what Rebecca and I constantly, you know, promote in our trainings, in our supervisions, are best practices that we have found through research and through our own practice. Yeah. I think also, too, I I really love how you mentioned about how, how, well, one, it's important to train people so that they know how to, how to support, right? But then also, too, it's also how do you then turn to the parent, right, or the adult and say, hey, I see you. I see what's happening here. You're not alone. And this is hard. And we're going to get through it. You know, I mean, something about just hearing those things just feels like, oh, my shoulders can relax a little bit. Like, this is going to be okay, Um, even though it doesn't feel okay. And one of – I just recently interviewed Katja Raul, the doctor, the feeding doctor, on the podcast recently. And I was thinking so much after I – after that episode and after reading her book, Love Me, Feed Me and stuff, and thinking about how – how important it is, and I could imagine that in a par- in a in a household where there is this like, how do you decide if it's behavioral versus something is happening, you know, psychologically and maybe even mechanically that's keeping my child from eating, and how we as parents are just like like you said, eat the damn spaghetti, <laughs> you know, just <laughs> eat it. But then at the same time feeling like, okay, the more I try to coerce them, the more they resist it. And that's like, how do you then find that delicate, I would imagine a very delicate balance as a parent, because I know with my own four-year-old, and she does not have feeding issues, but there is a delicate balance between if I even mention, oh, maybe you'd like to have that broccoli. Her response is, I see your broccoli, and I'm throwing it on the floor, (laughs) and I'm going to eat this instead, you know, even though she likes it, she knows how to eat it, and it's all the things, which is a totally different situation than someone with Arfred. But My point is, how do you then as a support your client and the parents to maintain a happy relationship with their children during meals (laughs) while also challenging, supporting and managing our friend? Because that sounds like you guys are doing really special work. (laughs) So I'd love for you guys to talk about that. Yeah, it isn't easy. And I think that... And this is why we do what we do. Every situation is unique and individual. What works for one person in one family might not work for another. And it, it can be difficult to weed through what works, what doesn't. I can tell you, no matter what you decide or how you decide to tackle that issue, the two main things, and I, I say this all the time, is consistency and being patient. Consistency is the key in anything when we want a child to feel comfortable with something, simply just showing up and providing them one time a, a, you know, trying this and then being done is not going to help them feel comfortable, no matter what the boundary is or whatever the obstacle is, whether it's a chewing issue, whether it's a fear issue, whether it's just an avoidance or sensory processing problem, 
but being consistent in the message that you're sending or the approach that you're using, I think is the hardest part for any parent. It can be exhausting. It can take weeks. It can take months, right? And so this is really where the biggest problem that I'm seeing or the biggest hurdle with families is being able to endure that in being consistent in what you're doing, whether it's showing up and making broccoli three times a week and knowing your kid is going to throw it three times a week, but it's the consistency and patience that you show over and over and over again, showing up to doing that, that really allows the child's anxiety to decrease and then be able to tackle whatever it is that we're trying to, to tackle. Yeah. And I could imagine too, like, it sounds like as a parent and as a parent of two now, right? Your, your capacity <laughs> to give <laughs> consistent endurance it <laughs> gets lessened a lot, right? And I could think too that as a parent, there could be so much guilt around and ease in, well, I know they'll eat this. So this is what I'm going to do because it's going to make everybody's life a lot easier right now and I have no problem just making them their second their own plate and then everyone else is going to eat the spaghetti and they're going to have their mashed potatoes that they like and that's what we're going to do and this is how the day is going to go and I would love for every parent that's out there listening for you guys to give them a hug (laughs) like I see you a little bit and Knowing that I could imagine as a parent, they're feeling so much guilt around the exhaustion with this. Yeah. 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 I think the accommodation piece just makes sense, right? Like when we're just trying to get everyone through the day and through the scenario and we just want them to eat because we care about our children and want the best for them, we're going to do whatever it takes, even if there is a fight or even if it means we're not in the mood or have the capacity for a fight. So, so I, I do love to, you know, relate to parents that the reality is you're going to accommodate and you're not doing the wrong thing. Right. So, so don't beat yourselves up about that. Um, the other piece that I always find, and of course, you know, as we all are dietitians and we are food and nutrition promoters and, you know, all about balance and variety and moderation and all of that, a big thing that I like to communicate to parents is, thankfully, even though in certain situations, this is not so great, but thankfully our food supply is so well fortified <laughs> that <laughs> even if your kiddo <laughs> or someone you are, you know, partnered with is eating things that you think might be less than nutritional, there is still nutrition there, right? Absolutely. And when we talk, right? Like it's yes. huge. Like, yes, so many of these parents. Calories calorie. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, honestly, and I was just thinking, man, if they eat Cheerios and whole milk, you're doing all right. You're getting you're your good. vitamin D, you're, good. you're getting your B vitamins, you're getting some stuff, you know? <laughs> exactly. And protein tends to be the, the area that is um, really hard for these individuals. And so I hear a lot of parents, you know, wanting to add protein powder where they can and, you know, find proteins that work. And we are going to do that work with them. And at the same time, the things we never think have protein in them actually do, right? And so it does build as they eat more volume of these things. Um, so that's something I like to put parents at ease with as well. Um, 
That's great. I think That's that, a good point. Those are two things. <laughs> that is really wonderful too, because I think I think well, I've talked about this on other episodes too about about this, so we're not we don't have to like dive down this road too much. But there is this level of like a score, like an internal like parental scorecard when it comes to like whether or not your kids are quote unquote good eaters or not, and that there is mm-hmm. like this like hierarchy in yeah. society. Like, oh well, my child loves kale salad. Like, loves kale smoothies and it's like like your kid doesn't like kale salads you know like (laughs) there's if your kid was presented with craft mac and cheese or a kale salad (laughs) most likely your kid's Uh, gonna choose i would take the i was (laughs) (laughs) there's a reason like it's delicious (laughs) okay and and to, to kind of talk about that like giving parents a hug and kind of saying you know what we see you, we understand it's exhausting. Think about and put this in perspective of anything else that you want your child to be able to do or learn. Our job as parents is not only to love and to nurture our children, but it's to prepare our children to be able to function on their own. That is one of the roles of a parent. And so instead of, you know, thinking, oh my gosh, I know this is so hard for you to learn to ride a bike. It's okay. If you don't learn to ride the bike, we're going to be fine. We often encourage our child to be like, I know this is difficult, but I have faith and I know that you can do difficult things. And so we talk a lot about distress tolerance and how Mm. to navigate this topic with your babies and with your children, children and your teens. Right. And so with the eating and just wanting, wanting to compensate and wanting to just appease everybody, we have to find that, that fine line of like, are we really appeasing them and helping them in that way? Or or is there a better way for us to do it, right? Is there a better way for us to help them manage the distress? Because oftentimes we talk about our fit is rooted in, in anxiety. It's rooted in distress, right? So finding ways to help your child deal with the distress can often be relieving to parents as well. Um, and I think that, you know, giving the parents kind of a verbal hug and saying like, I see you, it's exhausting you need to take care of yourself as well. But in that same vein, while you're learning self-care, this is a great opportunity to teach your children too how they can manage things that are difficult. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good point. Yeah. I appreciate that a lot. And I, I think for parents that are out there kind of listening and going through it, I think just hearing a like a professionals kind of saying that is really, I think, really validating for a lot of people and I think knowing like well you know you have to take care of yourself too but also at the same time modeling that is how our kids learn and modeling eating and all the different things too are important in this process as well so even if you don't feel like you're doing anything you are doing something even if it's not turning into anything in that exact meal. Like I think sometimes we think of it from like a plate. In eating disorder, there's a lot of like plate to plate kind of talk. And I think sometimes you have to take away from that plate to plate and look more at like the long term, you know. Mm -hmm. And I say that to my clients who have the parents of teens with eating disorders of mine saying, 
we're you're able to hypervigilantly like make and watch their plates now but what's going to happen when they go to college they need to learn these skills now so that when they leave the home they have the confidence and the ability to do it otherwise we're going to see that slippery slope come back out again and we have to build in that that understanding and confidence and autonomy for them too even if it's difficult for you right now because as a parent we're like stop the fire let's put out the fire we have to fix everything immediately Mm -hmm. because we love our children obviously and we want to see them thrive but at the same time sometimes even though it's really difficult we have to take a step back for a second Mm -hmm. and think long term what is this going to look like 20 years from now and how can i help my child 20 years from now Right. How to launch them, which is, you know, multifaceted, no matter if there's eating Mm -hmm. issues or not. But Mm -hmm. I think as we're talking along those lines, it's important for parents to hear that they may feel like their days are plagued with this plate to plate idea. And, Mm -hmm. oh, my gosh, here we go again. We're sitting down to another disastrous eating time. And it is so, so vital for everyone's well-being that the parent and the child or the, you know, caregiver and the other individual or the partner and you know, whoever the the dynamic is between is that there is found time outside of eating so that there can still be connection and bonding and trust and alliance and that it's not just seen as this battle day in and day out, hour to hour, all of that. And sometimes with younger individuals, it's actually really helpful to implement an incentive system or a a star chart or a level system so that there can be some autonomy that is recognized as they make gains, right? And their successes and that there can be cheerleading instead of all negative consequencing. Yeah. Let's face it. No 10 year olds can be like, oh my God, I ate kale salad. Yes, for me. <laughs> right? we, no. we are, children are naturally not going to have that normal motivation to eat those things. And that is okay. And so it is okay to use these incentives. I think a lot of people are like, oh, you know, but if I give them stickers, I'm going to have to give them stickers all my life. And once <laughs> they're able to manage that, you know, this is something that is learning, like Stephanie said, self-autonomy, like, look what I can do when I do hard things, look at what I accomplish. Yeah. I think it's funny because one of the, something that I'm reminded of when you said, I'm going to have to give them stickers forever was this quote that I can't remember who said it to me, but some mom, when I was a new mom said, you know, you don't, no kid goes to college swaddled, you know, like eventually they work, they work through this, you know? And I was like, ain't that the truth? You know, like you're living by like must swaddle, like it must have everything perfect. And then eventually it's like, oh yeah, we used to swaddle our babies, you know? And then um, one of the things that I was thinking about with the rewards and the sticker chart is that actually could be true. You might not need to give your child stickers for the rest of their life, right? But You know, a lot of people, and I definitely see this for a lot of my ADHD and neurodivergent clients, they love giving themselves stickers, you Uh know, like they Uh love their dot journal, like their, their journals with their tracking and things like that. And it helps them keep and being able to see in front of them what's going on. And I think sometimes like there's this idea that 
tracking stuff can be obviously I we're you know eating sort of professionals yes can be very dangerous right can be very dangerous but when the intent behind the tracking is used to help with feeding and it helps with a certain way then that is okay to do and I think that like kind of like I think some I read on there too that some of your tips for with someone who's struggling with our friend, I think we can kind of like start to wrap up with some of these types of tips, but I'd love for you to talk about some tips that you encourage people to use that like things like, I remember reading like, you don't have to like everything you eat and Mm -hmm. things like um, you can eat to the clock, you know? And I think that that can feel really weird in the intuitive eating world of like, oh no, you're supposed to hear it. And I remember a client of mine said, I don't hear it. I go, well, then we're going to set a timer. Like you yeah. still have, yep. whether whether you feel it or not, you still have to eat. Yeah. So, so yeah. let's decide when we're going to do it. I was like, quite frankly, this makes our life a lot easier because yeah. now we know an hour after you wake up, you have to have something at this time. And then every three hours from then, boom, here we go. Like it can, and I think that's really liberating. And I think that there's a lot of shame in that about having to use tools like that or thinking that they're inherently bad or um, like, oh, I should just know how to eat or when to eat. I'd love for you to share some of those action steps for for everybody listening who's maybe an adult or even that can be applied to their child. Yeah, sure. I mean, I that's one of my go-tos is like, you don't look to like it. We're not looking to like the food, right? You know, a lot of times is give something at least 30 tries before you make a food opinion. We often don't choose our spouse or choose a car or choose anything off of a first opinion. Why are we making first opinions off of food? Give yourself at least 30 tries of this food before you have to say yay or nay. So that's one of my favorite ones. And when you were talking about like writing things down or keeping to the clock, I often tell my clients that write down three things that you did today. When you tell me I got nothing done or that I struggled to remember to eat, I just want you to write three things that you accomplished that you did today. And sometimes that will give them motivation and that will kind of give them a little bit of kudos for them to feel like, you know what? I survived today. I did what I had to do. And so, you know, documenting your or reflecting on your eating, we might need to keep meal logs. We might need to set alarms. Oftentimes my go-to for alarms is you set the alarm for a half an hour before your meal, 10 minutes before your meal, and then when you're supposed to eat, because you're giving yourself a heads up to wrap up whatever you're doing and shift your focus, then to eat. Oh, that's brilliant. I never even thought of that. I love that. Yeah. Steph, that what about you? Lot, you got some good ones. a lot of sense. I think that, you know, echoing what Rebecca said is we would love for people to reach the point of enjoyment with eating and eating scenarios, but we really reinforce the term tolerance, right? So can you reach a point with a new eating scenario or environment or new food item where it is tolerable or manageable to interact with it, to consume it, to be in it without anxiety or overwhelm taking over and thus impacting the GI system and and thus shutting everything down and making eating feel even harder, right? So, um, you know, I think along the lines of alarms, of reminders, of, you know, 
texts to their provider that they've accomplished this. There are so many tools out there that don't have a right or wrong and that instead are what works for that individual. I My immediate go-to is always, hey, can we set a reminder, set an alarm? And there are individuals who are like, I have alarms for everything. I will ignore the crap out of that, right? And so <laughs> we don't end there. We decide what's going to work for them, right? What's yeah. the accountability? What's the follow-through? What's the tool that will make it uh, just a little bit easier. And then additionally, what I have come to use more recently with most of my RFID clients, and I think for people to conceptualize whether they're getting treatment right now, whether they're starting to think about what is going on for me, or whether they're like, this is just who I am. But I think what's important to think about is this concept of the spoon theory, or filling your bucket, or those types of things in terms of as Rebecca was saying with her clients, she has them write down, what did you accomplish today? And in the same vein, what does your typical day look like? And what are the more limiting activities, i.e. grocery shopping or eating or thinking about a menu? And how do we figure out how many spoons, so to speak, those activities take and what can be done to replenish that capacity. And also letting us as clinicians who specialize in ARFID help them work through those tasks that just have to get done, but feel so taxing. Yes. Yeah. If I had a dollar for every time a client said to me, I wish I could just not eat and still be able to yeah. fun because it's almost yeah. like the, the taxing of it, like yeah. the planning around it, the meal, the decision, everything about it, the grocery shopping feels very exhaustive. And yeah. sometimes it is just like they've said to me, like, I wish I just didn't have to do this. Like this yeah. feels like yeah. such a chore. I'm like, Oh, well then let's automate, (laughs) you know, I'm like, all right, let's come up with our like meals. Let's do all these different things. We'll do this together. And I think something about that can feel really supportive because it does feel, and I, I mean, I get it. it. There's all those memes for a reason on Instagram about how, um, who knew that adulting was going to be making a decision about what to eat every single day for the rest of my life, you know? And I'm a nutritionist who loves food, who loves to eat, who enjoys it. And I'm still like, ah, what are we going to make? Yeah, <laughs> so totally. It can be exhausting. And, and with the teenagers and the little kids, even with adults, I've done this. It's, I have made um, popsicle sticks and we put on the back a sticker of um, magnets and we make it into food groups. So it's like, here's your starch, here's your protein, here's your veg. And so kind of just choosing from each when we're really struggling with food selection, that way, you know what, the less we have to ruminate over all the different options that are trying to like juggle in our head, the easier that food decision is going to be. So simply, you know, grabbing that popsicle stick of, okay, here's my protein, here's my starch, here's my veg or my fruit, and then just going with it. So sometimes that object permanence when something is there can really be helpful instead of trying to root through the files in your brain to make. No, I, I, I love that. And one of the things that I feel like with that too, is being able to have the popsicle, like the pops. I love that idea of being able to grab it and being able to pick it and seeing like, okay, this is what we're going to do. It's here. It's an easy decision. I can do that. But even before that, making sure it's accessible. So, mm-hmm. so like that's one of the things that I've always said to my to to people too is like 
do you have food easily and readily <laughs> and consistently available for you to eat? Because there's nothing worse in the world saying I'm really hungry and I want something to eat and none of the things that I, I don't have anything here available to me. And that right. is an awful feeling. And so making sure that I tell clients like there's like a, I do this practice of going through what are my staples? What are my staple items that I have to have each week with each grocery run that I know that are available, that I know that I'm comfortable eating and it's available. And they're like my automatic autopilot, this is what's coming. Mm -hmm. And then there's the other ones where, okay, maybe I want to diversify a little bit, you know, and then you add those things onto your list and we create those lists together. And I think that that can be really helpful too of making sure not only can you eat to the clock, manage it, know that you're going to be doing certain things and working on the systems for like what is keeping you from being able to eat, but then also making sure, do I have what I like available right. consistently? Right. right. I think that's a Yeah. Deal. So whether it's popsicle sticks, which yes, Rebecca, that's brilliant. Or <laughs> what I often do is, you know, run through each eating time and what the individual tends to, um, to prefer at that eating time. Not a, it's not about what's right or wrong at those times, but what is their trend? And so that they can post it on their cabinet or their pantry or their refrigerator or in their room if they don't want others to be seeing it so blatantly. And it's breakfast. Okay, I've got four options. I'm just gonna choose one, whichever my eye hits. I don't have to think about it. I know it's a consistent preferred option. I know I always have it because I have my running grocery list because it's in my Instacart, you know, <laughs> you know, template, all the things. There are so many things that we love to do with our clients to help make eating easier. And that feels like a big role that we play um, to simplify it, to make it less of a burden um, and to have them feel the success and the, the increased ease around something we have to do. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, we have to eat, even if you don't want to. <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah. I don't find that to be unfortunate. I love it. But if you don't, right. unfortunately right. for you, we still have to do it. And that's what I, I mean, tell my clients. We still have to eat. You, you know, we still have to do it. That you're born to the moment that you expire. You have to eat three times a day. You're bound to get disenchanted with food at some point <laughs> in your life. Right. You have to do this multiple times a day and you have to do it throughout your life. So it's OK to be not okay with eating. And I think that liberation in itself of being saying, you know what, we don't have to fight anymore with trying to be okay. Let's just not be okay with eating. That frees up everything and being like, okay, somebody hears me. I don't have to (laughs) always put on this mask of being happy around doing all these things, whether it's food shopping, cooking, prepping, eating, engaging in social interactions with food there. But just allow yourself to say, you know what? It ain't my jam and that's okay. No, I love that. And, oh, man, I feel like we could talk about this for hours. There's so many other things that I feel like, ooh, but I could go into this. But (laughs) it's we've had our time. But I would love for you guys to kind of share – a little bit about where people can find you, what you guys are working on. You've referenced a couple of things in there. So I'd love for you to share all of those things with us. And thank you for talking about this and doing this work because practitioners need it. People need it. And it's just, I'm so happy that there are people like you out there really working on this and really trying to bring the knowledge forward. So thank you for coming on today and talking about it. 
Yeah, yeah. Thank you for having us. So I am Stephanie Ginsberg. Um, I have a virtual private practice and I'm located in the Denver Boulder area in Colorado, but given um, the flexibility that our licensure has, have the opportunity to practice or see clients from various states. And that is listed on my website. My practice is called Unrestricted Nutrition, Counseling and Consulting. Um, I have two associates who are um, well-versed in all eating disorder diagnoses. And as a result of working with me are becoming ARFID experts. <laughs> um, and so we, we treat all eating disorders, disordered eating, you know, just helping people feel more equipped. Um, and ARFID is our specialty. Um, and Rebecca and I joined forces almost three years ago, um, kind of a, a, a heaven sent, you know, um, partnering. And we have since created um, a couple of live trainings for dietitians around ARFID treatment. Um, and we have since created about a year ago, a web-based 12 chapter course um, for all eating disorder professionals um, and clinicians to um, become more well-versed in treating ARFID. And it runs the gamut of all disciplines, two chapters on food exposures. It's, it's pretty in depth. Um, and we created the ARFID collaborative, like Rebecca had mentioned with some other um, prominent ARFID clinicians in the country, which is a free resource website for anyone who has any relation to ARFID. Um, so yeah, I'm really grateful for you having us on and letting us talk about our passion. I'm Rebecca Thomas. I'm a registered dietitian who owns a private practice who um, is now called Food Freedom Nutrition Group. And we are located in the Baltimore, uh, Maryland area. I also have two associates that specialize in intuitive eating and eating disorder recovery. Uh, we do both virtual and we do in-person services. In addition to that, back when I started my practice, um, I started to develop a program called Brave, which is better recovery for ARFID and very selective eaters. And it's a step-by-step -step program that I utilize um, that has aspects of all different approaches, whether it's CBTAR, FBTAR, um, you know, food exposure, um, responsive feeding, um, but I utilize this both for parents that are looking to help their children refeed at home, and also if I'm working with adults, a very step-by-step -step process to help them maximize what they're already doing with eating and also introduce new foods in a comfortable way. Great. Thank you so much, you guys. Hey friends, it's Dana, and thanks so much for listening to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast today. Find us on social media at Wholehearted Eating Pod on Instagram and at wholeheartedeating.com for more information about working with Dana and Christina for one-on-one -on -one nutrition counseling. If you love the show, we would love you forever if you'd share an episode with your family and friends or tag us on social media or leave a five-star rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts to help more people find the show. Check out patreon.com slash wholeheartedeating to help support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, bonus episodes with us and our guests, episode discussions, new resources we're creating for Patreon, and so much more. If you have questions for us, feedback on the show, potential topics or guests you'd love to have on, shoot us an email at hello at wholeheartedeating.com and we'll see you next week.